welcome to 90 Day Pro Se, breaking down the legal drama and the personal drama of 90 Day Fiancé. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to the first episode of 90 Day Pro Se. This is my first podcast and I'm really excited because this is something that I've had on my mind to do for a very long time. I'm an immigration attorney and a big fan of the TLC show 90 Day Fiancé. As an immigration attorney, I feel that I have a unique perspective while watching this show and sometimes I get absolutely rageful at the misinformation that's being spread by cast members albeit maybe inadvertently, but still being spread on the show regarding the legal process surrounding the K-1 visa and other immigration law issues. First off, I want to add a disclaimer that the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. All information and content in this podcast is provided for general informational purposes only. Immigration law is constantly changing and evolving, and information on this episode may not constitute the most up-to-date information, depending on when you're listening to it. So listeners, if you have an immigration legal issue, you should contact an experienced immigration attorney to obtain advice with respect to your particular legal matter. And as we saw on this season, online forums are not the place to obtain adequate legal advice. I'm looking at you, Andrew and Amira. Perhaps before I dive into the review, I'd like to give you a little bit of background on myself so you can get to know me. As I said, I'm an immigration attorney and I have experience in all areas of immigration law, including family-based immigration, employment immigration, and humanitarian immigration. I started my career working at a nonprofit that focused on policy advocacy for immigrant women and children and immigrant survivors of domestic violence. I now work in private practice where I represent clients in various matters before the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, before the immigration courts, and at the consular level. I started watching 90 Day Fiancé about three years ago when it was recommended to me by my office's paralegal and now dear, dear friend who dutifully listens to my post-show 90 Day Fiancé rants every week. She's probably regretting having recommended the show to me at this point. (laughs) This podcast name of Pro Se comes from the Latin term meaning in one's own behalf, which we use in the legal context to refer to parties or litigants that are representing themselves in court. As you can see, a lot of our cast members are pro se in their K-1 visa journey. But to be honest, the reason I chose it is because it is a common legal term that happens to rhyme with 90 day. So to kick off this first episode of the podcast, I'm reviewing the most recent episode of season eight, which is episode 11, Three's a Party. However, I do plan to reference some past events from earlier in this season just to contextualize some of my overall reactions to the cast members and their individual predicaments. So initially I was thinking that I would cover all of the couples in this episode, but really only a handful of them had good material to talk about immigration issues. 
Um, so I decided that I would kind of focus in on just those couples. So I'm going to start with Tarek and Hazel. And really throughout this season, their main plot point kind of to cause drama has been the fact that Hazel wants a girlfriend. And so I started to think that, you know, how would a polyamorous relationship affect their process? So let's first talk about the basics of marriage-based immigration. Only people in a valid, bona fide marriage are eligible to seek marriage-based green cards. Now, simply put, a marriage is considered valid if it's legal where it took place, unless it violates some U.S. public policy like polygamy, for example. But what does bona fide marriage mean? A marriage is considered bona fide when it's entered into in good faith and not just for immigration purposes. So people can enter into marriage for many different reasons that can be affected by one's culture, religion, etc. But the basic requirement is that the two parties intend to share a life together as spouses. The intent of the parties at the time of entering into the marriage is key to the analysis of whether it's bona fide. So even if the marriage breaks up later, no matter how maybe soon after marriage it breaks up, it's the intent at the time of marriage that's really what matters. So what does this mean for Tarek and Hazel and Hazel's desire to have a girlfriend while being married to Tarek? I think that if they get married and apply for the green card, and if the officer happens to watch 90 Day Fiancé, that this could be a massive red flag and will probably subject their case to higher scrutiny. That being said, even with a red flag like this, it's not a definitive factor and you can overcome something like this with an explanation or presenting other factors, other evidence that shows that you're in a bona fide marriage. Now, there are people who are married that bring in a third person, or more. <laughs> However, this doesn't mean that the individuals who are married are no less committed to the marriage or to building a life together in a partnership. And I think a lot of people might try to attack Hazel and say, she doesn't love him, this is a fake marriage, she's just doing it for the green card, but... Love is not a prerequisite to a bona fide marriage, and the fact that love is even the basis for marriage is really a modern idea, and even in the modern age, it varies a lot across cultures. This idea of love is the best foundation for marriage, or love is what, you know, makes you want to marry someone. But in other cultures, it may be the emphasis is more on you know, blending of the two families and making sure the families are a good match rather than romantic love or overarching social reasons, societal reasons over romantic love. So just because two people don't love each other in the romantic sense at the outset of their marriage in the sense of love that we think of in the U.S. doesn't necessarily dictate whether they can still be entering into a bona fide marriage, meaning they're intending to build a life together, to support each other, to create a family. In fact, if we set the bar at romantic love, many individuals who marry, for example, in arranged marriages, which are perfectly valid and bona fide marriages, would be excluded from the immigration process because they didn't, quote unquote, love each other at the beginning of the marriage. And I mean, in my opinion, in the end, if, if a U.S. citizen is not allowed to petition for a green card for their spouse, it's the U.S. citizen that is hurt from being, being denied their partner. We put a lot of focus on 
what is the benefit or loss to the foreign national? What are they trying to get out of this? But this whole thing, this whole immigration laws and ability to petition for your spouse is all meant to benefit the U.S. citizen and to the overall societal best interests of family unity and security. So what's the worst case scenario that could happen? What would happen if they were determined to be a fake marriage? Based just on what I see, I I don't think there is much basis to accuse Tarek of having bad faith, but I don't know, Hazel's enthusiasm for opening up their relationship to a third person may put her intention for her marriage with Tarek into question to if they had a close-minded individual adjudicating their case who maybe might believe she's just marrying for the green card. So if the government does determine that their marriage is fake, the green card will be denied and the non-citizen faces removal, which is our modern, nicer, fluffier way of saying deportation. But before removal, the foreign national would have the opportunity to have, like, to rehear the case before the judge, an immigration judge, and that judge, they may decide to rule in their favor and grant the green card, or they may order the person removed. So bringing it back to Tark and Hazel, I don't think we should be so quick to judge Hazel on her intentions. She may very well care for Tarek a lot and want to support him and him to support her to love and care for each other's children and to live a life in in partnership. And her wanting a girlfriend as an addition to their own partnership, in my view, doesn't necessarily have any kind of impact on that intention that's required for a bona fide marriage. And moreover, as I was kind of thinking about this, I started to think about other scenarios where There's another person in a marital relationship. And so, for example, we don't question the intention of a person who may be cheated with a third with another person while married. Um, You know, if someone cheats, we don't usually then turn around and say, you had no intention of building a life with me when you married me. I mean, maybe in some circumstances, I suppose, but majority, we wouldn't probably jump to that conclusion. And in Tarek and Hazel's situation, we have consent. It's not even cheating. Both partners are on board. And it seems that, I mean, maybe Tarek isn't the instigator, but both partners appear comfortable that this is something that they can do and it doesn't threaten their own relationship. In addition to the risk of removal, there's also strong criminal penalties for marriage fraud and depending on the circumstances it could be for both parties like I said in this case I don't think that Tarek's intentions could be questioned but if for example Tarek was receiving money payments for petitioning for her or something like that in that scenario he could also be liable too so an individual who knowingly enters into a fake marriage for immigration purposes can face up to five years in prison and be fined up to $250,000. There could also potentially be um, adjacent crimes to that. So depending on the circumstances, maybe they could also be charged with visa fraud, harboring an alien, making false statements, and those would all carry their own separate uh prison sentences, potential prison sentences, and fines. 
the foreign national would also be barred from trying to immigrate in the future, even if they later entered into a bona fide marriage with a U.S. citizen. So there's some really serious consequences to marriage fraud. But in conclusion, let's not, let's not jump to conclusions on Hazel's intentions. However, the fact that they are broadcasting her seeking a girlfriend and her enthusiasm for having a girlfriend kind of worries me that that's going to be public knowledge. I just really hope that the officer who adjudicates her case does not watch this show. So next I want to talk about Rebecca and Ziad. Uh, Ziad or Zayed. There's two, I'm pretty sure there's two separate Arabic names. Ziad or Zayed. I feel like the way he spells his name, it could kind of go either way. So I'm not really sure. I, I need to pay closer attention next time he says his own name. Um, or maybe his mom or sister or dad says the name. Um, so I can see what it is. But without seeing it in the original Arabic, I can't, I, I don't know which name it is. But I'll probably use it fairly interchangeably. So I apologize. But I need to double check. So... For Rebecca and Ziad, um, we have a few issues that I want to address. One from this episode and one from a past episode that popped into my head while I was preparing for this podcast. The first is from this episode, which is the fact that Ziad is driving in this episode, which may seem very trivial and non-consequential, but it is. Because there are lots of rules around who can get a driver's license when you're an immigrant here. And those rules are governed by the state law generally. So you kind of have to go state by state on what kind of documentation do you have to provide in order to show your lawful status here in order to get a driver's license. So I did look up the laws in Georgia And for someone with only a visa and not yet having a green card, uh, they need to show proof of their status, which would be the unexpired passport with the visa in that passport. And they need to show either a valid I-94 or I-797A. So the I-94 is what you get upon your entry to the U.S. on a visa, and it will state what status you entered on. It will indicate the duration of your lawful stay, your date of entry. So your lawful stay when you enter on a K-1 is obviously 90 days. Uh, So just using an I-94 for your driver's license will likely not be accepted in Georgia as it would only be 90 days. They wouldn't want to issue a driver's license for beyond that authorized stay. So I don't think that's a good option and they probably wouldn't even accept it. So the second option is I-797A, which is a notice of action, which is just kind of the general form number for receipt notices and approval notices used by um, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or USCIS. So basically what it does is it provides evidence of your application, and in most circumstances it can be used as evidence of your permission to remain in the U.S., despite maybe if your authorized stay under your initial visa has expired. And this is definitely the case when your application for the green card is pending. So 
These are the minimum required documents needed for a driver's license in Georgia. So what does this mean? This means, at minimum, at the time that this scene was filmed, Rebecca and Ziad were already married and had filed his I-485 application to adjust status to lawful permanent residency, which is the green card. And I would say calculating time to get married, even if they're just doing a quick courthouse marriage, putting together the application, let's give that a week, I don't know. Um, Rebecca seems like someone who's on top of things like that, so I'm going to say that she probably had, had her stuff together. <laughs> Waiting for the receipt to arrive, the notice, the I-797A, which could take anywhere from a week or two to 30, 30 days, about a month. Um, sometimes it's faster, sometimes it's a little slower. And then, of course, time to apply for and get the driver's license. So I would say we are seeing here in this scene... Zied and Rebecca at least a month or more into their marriage in, in these scenes, going to the, uh, the son's house. So they're married at this point. I don't see any other way. Oh, well, maybe there's a couple of alternative options. He could have an international driver's license, which I don't know. I kind of doubt. It's not a common thing. Second alternative is he could have been driving illegally, but something tells me this isn't Rebecca's first rodeo on the K-1 visa and the green card process, so she was probably on top of it. But I feel that this, this revelation is kind of bigger than just this one scene and more than just a little, little tidbit, because in future episodes, we're going to see some drama about they have to get married before Ramadan. I mean, true, these could be shot out of order and they just stuck this um, this scene here as kind of a filler. And this really technically maybe was filmed after that whole Ramadan drama. It's hard to say, but there's definitely some some foolery have happening in in this scene either. This scene is filmed out of order and they just stuck it here or the upcoming scene is all producer driven drama because they were already married anyway that's my take on it so now at this time I would like to draw your attention back to earlier in this season in a drama filled scene where Rebecca is seated on a park bench after Zied already had his interview and is constantly refreshing the website for an update on the visa status this scene is complete and utter malarkey. First, when the consulate takes his passport, it is for the purpose of issuing the visa, and he would have been told this by the officer. So that's clear and simple malarkey number one. Number two, and the most important one, in my opinion, the website that was shown that she was refreshing was the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service website which shows that the K-1 petition was approved. However, this is not the visa approval. A K-1 petition approval and the actual physical K-1 visa approval are two separate steps in the process and are handled by two completely different branches of government, which is the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of State, respectively. So, 
A K-1 petition is filed with the Department of Homeland Security and is the petition essentially wishing to designate your fiancé as your fiancé, as your family member, and then thus eligible to be granted a K-1 visa. So at that stage, what you're trying to prove in that petition is just the relationship. You need to show evidence of your bona fide relationship to the Department of Homeland Security. And so at that time, all the Department of Homeland Security is looking at is, which through the USCIS, the Immigration Services, all they're looking at is whether they believe your relationship is real or not. The actual visa application doesn't come until after that petition is already approved, and then the petition is forwarded to the National Visa Center, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security. Sorry, I mean Department of State. And that's where you have to provide information about the fiancé. So at this step, they're, they're assessing the fiancé's eligibility for a visa. So that could include past immigration history, if they had been in the U.S. before, had violated any um, immigration law in the past. It would include background security checks, um, if they'd ever been involved in terrorism, it would uh, involve you asking questions and providing evidence that you won't become a public charge, those kinds of things. Now they're looking at the eligibility of the individual themselves. So once all the information is gathered with the National Visa Center, they send the application to the consulate, which is a part of the Department of Home, uh, sorry, Department of State, and uh, for, to be scheduled for an interview. Now, at the interview, they may revisit the issue of the validity and bona fideness of the relationship, but generally deference is given to the approved petition unless there's some new evidence that was found or if during the interview something came up that made them start to be suspicious. Um, and if that were the case, that they started to doubt the bona fideness of the relationship, they would refuse the visa and send the petition back to the USCIS for revisiting and potentially revocation of the petition. So in that scene, Rebecca is refreshing the USCIS website, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, which can only show her the status of the K-1 petition, which has been approved for months. There is no way that there was any change on that application Unless maybe this was filmed out of order and they're trying to make the petition approval drama look like the visa approval drama, which very well could be, you know, they can really do whatever they want with that, that film and rearrange things however way they want. So if she were actually looking at the visa approval, she would need to be on the NVC website to be looking at the updates to the visa process. Which maybe, maybe it's not as easy to film because in order to keep checking on that website, you have to put in your case number, put in your invoice number, then go through a little anti-robot code every single time. So it's not like a, it's not a matter of just refreshing, refreshing. It's, it's a process every time that you want to re-log in. Um, the US CIS website is a little simpler. All you have to do is keep pasting your receipt notice um, and then just keep clicking to refresh it. So it's a little easier thing to have that drama of refresh, refresh, refresh to see. But 
what she was seeing in that moment was that the K-1 petition approval, which hasn't been approved for months easily if he just had his interview. Because as I said, after the petition is approved, it goes to the National Visa Center and then there's some paperwork process there and then it goes to the consulate and then he has to wait for an interview to be scheduled. So that, that can be, depending on the consulate and a lot of, you know, bureaucratic factors, that can be several months. So anyway, that's some early season rubbish that I wanted to call out that came to my mind as I was writing things. So some non-legal things that are bothering me about Rebecca and Zayed's uh, sections is uh, the speaking incorrect English to him is bothering me. I interact with foreigners with varying degrees of English fluency, and I never use incorrect English. Uh, maybe I use some simplified English and definitely avoid idioms. Like, you don't want to say something like, let's not beat a dead horse to someone who's not proficient in English. And to be honest, even people fluent in English may not know idioms because idioms are very cultural. It's not just about the language. It's about even regional. Uh, there's a lot of southern idioms that I remember one of my friends from law school used to use all the time where I was just, I've never heard that before and I have no idea what you're trying to communicate to me. So that I can understand. But just flat out speaking improper English or worse, mimicking the grammatical mistakes your partner is making is probably the worst thing you can do for them in helping them to learn. You need to model proper speech to them so that they can mimic you and that's how they'll uh, they'll learn and they'll improve. And I know and I've seen that she's kind of tried to justify and say that she knows how to get him to understand, but to be honest, that's just insulting to Ziet. I'm sure he would understand if he spoke simple proper English rather than broken English. And to do that in front of people, you're, you're making him look like an idiot to these other people, to be honest. It's really a doing a disservice to, to your partner. But by doing this, by speaking in this very broken English and really mimicking his, his own grammatical mist mistakes and in front of people... You're, you're showing people an image of him that I think a lot of people would just look at that and be, oh, wow, okay, so he's kind of slow. He, she needs to talk like that to get him to understand. Wow. I, it bothers me. It bothers me a lot. Um, that being said, it, I, I did think it was really cute how tickled he was, um, being a grandpa. I thought that was adorable. Um, that's, I'm rooting for this couple. I, I had some reservations from a few things that happened in the previous season, but they won me over and Rebecca won me over big time on the, um, I think it was the tell all when she stood up to, uh, to defend, uh, little Avery. I'm, I like. She she won me over. I still like her. I still like you, girl. So let's move on to really quickly covering Mike and Natalie. Oh, Mike and Natalie. 
what to say about Mike and Natalie. I'm, I'm having whiplash with this couple in the sense that I just feel like I'm getting pulled both sides. There's times that I totally agree with Mike and there's other times where I kind of agree with Natalie or I see where Natalie's coming from and I just feel like they're button heads. They're just, I don't know, they're not meant, meant for each other. Based on what we are seeing, I, I can't see how they're meant for, how this can work. They're so ill-suited to each other. But anyway, in terms of immigration law, the biggest issue I have with Mike and Natalie is the fact that they're fairly openly using 90 days to figure stuff out to see if they really want to get married. And this is like, this is a common trope on the show of people saying we only got 90 days to figure it out. And partially I get why they do that because it ups the drama. But people, this is not what the 90 days are for. The K-1 visa is for fiancés of U.S. citizens, and I have always been under the impression that a fiancé is someone you have already decided that you want to marry and spend your life with them. So the 90 days are really, they're for planning your wedding, or yeah, they're just for planning your wedding, which is a stressful thing and I think could easily be played up for drama in lieu of this, do, do we really want to be together stuff? I mean... My wedding was multicultural. My husband and I are from two different countries. And it was stressful. And I had almost a year and a half to plan it. And it was very stressful. So I can only imagine how much drama and emotions would have happened if I only had had 90 days to get it together. So I think you can still work with it without completely mischaracterizing the K-1 visa. But... Now, we also, from this episode, we now have the revelation that Mike and Natalie are not engaged. They do not consider each engaged to each other. At least Mike, for sure, didn't. And uh, basically, it seems that in his mind, they haven't been engaged since she gave back the ring. So this may be out on a limb, but I got to thinking that technically, this could invalidate her K-1 or invalidated it in the past, where she entered representing herself as a fiancé of a U.S. citizen when she was not. So that could be misrepresentation if you had a nitpicky officer. Um, and, you know, that's my job to think like a nitpicky officer. Uh, I mean, I would highly doubt that she would ever get called out for it, especially if they end up marrying, which word on the street is that they are. But I guess technically she would have entered by misrepresenting her status when she was technically not eligible to enter under that specific category of visa. Though I guess technically, I think she was under the impression that she was still a fiancé at that time. So Natalie's in a gray area. She's definitely, you know, if the situation had been they broke up very clearly broke up, were not engaged. But then it just so happened that her visa came in. They put the visa in the passport and they gave gave it back to her. And then she decided, well, I have this visa, so I'm just going to come into the U.S. And I suppose if she had done that and not told Mike, that for sure would have been, you know, an unlawful entry. She misrepresented herself and the facts. But the way they are now is kind of... It's, kind of, it's a gray area. 
And for sure, if they end up marrying, I would say that it would just kind of invalidate any probably confusion on that. Um, because really you're going by intention and if they get married, you know, who's to say that wasn't her intention because she followed through on it. Anyway, I hope these guys either figure stuff out quick or just break up because it just depresses me watching them. I was such a fan of them in their original season and I really loved Natalie at first. She just, I just thought she had this beautiful little angelic face and they seemed so great together at first, but now they're just, they're both treating each other so terribly. And at this point, both, both of them are at fault in different ways. So I would just want them to break up. This is truly what their relationship is. But like I said, spoiler alert, word on the street. I don't know. I've just heard this. I don't actually know if it's true, but word on the street is that they did get married, but that doesn't actually mean anything. They can get married and still not be together. So we'll just have to see about that at the end of this season. What happens? God, how long is this season going to be? I, I'm, I'm feeling fatigued by it, to be honest. I hope it's not, I hope it's not too much longer. We'll see. Just a few more. Just give it a few more episodes. That's all we need. Just wrap it up. So the last couple I want to cover is Stephanie and Ryan. And the reason I decided to cover them last is because I want to give a quick trigger warning that I will be talking about issues of sexual assault. Um, so this is the last cast member I'm featuring. So if you may be triggered by this topic, you can stop listening now. But but maybe skip ahead. Skip ahead to the last minute to hear about... I will link... Uh, not link. I can't verbally link something. I'll let you know my social media handle and... Um, just give a little sign off. So you could skip ahead to the last minute or so for that and skip over this. Cause I also will be talking about another legal issue after the sexual assault, um, part that relates to Stephanie and Ryan. So just skip over to the last few minutes, um, or stop listening, whatever, whatever makes you feel more comfortable. Um, so there's the trigger warning. Um, so I'm not talking about immigration law so much in this section, um, but I did do some research just because I myself was very curious about what the legal status of this form of sexual assault was in the United States or in other countries. Um, and then I also just reached back into my old law school uh, knowledge bank um, to recall some little tidbits to share on the issue, but um, I'm by no means an expert in any kind of criminal law or anything like that, but all right, here we go. To be honest, I, I was shocked that there was no trigger warning put by TLC, but then as I did some research, I was not surprised after I learned that this form of sexual assault is not considered sexual assault under the law of the U.S. or of most other countries in the world. Um, and I do want to say really quick that I am trying to separate my feelings about Stephanie generally from this analysis, because, sorry, analysis, because I do find her very problematic, but if this did happen to her, it is a terrible violation of her bodily autonomy and, um, yeah, nobody deserves that. Uh, so for anyone who may be confused on what I'm talking about, wondering where the sexual assault was, 
The incident I'm talking about is that Stephanie is, is alleging that she asked Ryan to put on a condom, which he pretended to do by scrunching up the wrapper or, or something, um, but he didn't actually put it on, um, even though Stephanie was led to believe that it was. So while Stephanie did consent to sex, it was a conditional consent upon the condition that her partner would wear protection. So having the unprotected sex was not consensual, which makes this a form of sexual assault. And when you think about it, it can be really dark and it can be weaponized, this this as a form of sexual assault in terms of forced pregnancy, um, infecting someone with HIV AIDS, you know, it can be a very serious thing. Um, and I'd also like to address the fact that Ryan tries to justify his actions by saying, we've never used condoms before, so I don't see what's wrong. Now, apart from the fact that that kind of sounds to me like an indirect admission that he did do, do it, <laughs> but more importantly, consent can be withdrawn. And just because you consented to a certain act on one occasion does not give that that part sexual partner carte blanche for all the time for all times and forever you know not only can consent be uh, withdrawn no matter at any stage but consent a consent is like a one time thing it's a it's a one punch ticket and if you you need to get a new one every single time so that was really worrisome to me to hear Ryan voice that opinion because I think it was very telling that there may be some um, there may be some truth to what Stephanie was saying because I've heard people kind of doubting that she thought maybe she was drumming up drama but based on his reaction I, I don't know I, I think there might be some truth there but it's who can tell now, I did do a little research into the legal status of this act. And first, I, so online, it's referred to as stealthing, which I don't really like calling it that because it kind of make, gives it this kind of cutesy, fun name. I, I mean, that's how it sounds to me. Maybe it doesn't sound like that to other people, but I feel like it kind of softens what what it actually is, which is a form of sexual assault. So I won't be referring to it that way. I, I don't really... I, I couldn't believe even the Wikipedia page had it as that. It's like, we can't think of a better name or just put it as a sub thing on the sexual assault Wikipedia page or something. Anyway, I'll write... I will write an open letter to Wikipedia on this matter. Um, Where was I? Okay, yeah, so I did do some research on this, um, and I was really shocked at that time to see how few laws there are internationally regarding this. Um, so first of all, for example, in the United States, there are no existing laws that specifically cover this form of sexual assault. Um, however, I was very pleased to see that this month, February 2021, a California Assembly member, Christina Garcia, 
has proposed a bill that which would make actions of this form of assault illegal in the state of California uh, as punishable as uh, sexual battery. However, it does look like uh, Ms. Garcia introduced similar bills in 2017 and 2018 uh, for the California Criminal Code, but they never made it to the hearing, um, which is unfortunate, but hopefully third time's a charm. And this will add the provision to the state's uh, the state's criminal code if it's passed. So we can hope for that. Uh, some other cases internationally that I found that in 2017 uh, in Australia there was a case regarding this form of sexual assault that uh, it was said that it was sexual assault because it changes the terms of consent, which I thought was a very good way of expressing it. In Canada, the Supreme Court in 2014 upheld a sexual assault conviction of a man who poked holes in his condom. And in Germany in 2018, a man was found guilty of sexual assault in the country's very first conviction for this form of sexual assault. Um, in Switzerland in 2017, a court in Lausanne convicted a man for rape for removing a condom during sex against the expectations of the woman he was having sex with. However, in 2019, the Supreme Court of Zurich disagreed and held that such conduct was not illegal, illegal, albeit with regret. So that's more, it seems that there was, that judge was just a more black letter of the law reader. So it's basically saying, yeah, like make it illegal so that I can make the decision. It's not uncommon, I think, for judges to have that predicament where morally they want to rule a certain way, but in terms of what the law is, their hands are tied. In the United Kingdom, under UK law, consent to a specific sex act, but not to any sex act without exceptions, is known as conditional consent. So that was just something I found interesting. You know, it doesn't have anything to do with immigration laws. Like, this was obviously kind of the big hitter of the episode in terms of drama. So it, it really got me thinking and wanting to know a bit more about that area. So something that did rub me the wrong way also um, on this episode was uh, Stephanie freaking out over whether he stole anything. Um, specifically, mostly freaking out about whether he stole the ring. This bothered me for a couple reasons. First, other than maybe the ring, all those things were gifts. You cannot steal a gift that was given to you. And generally when you give a gift, you don't then have the legal right to take the gift back. Except for in very limited circumstances when it was like a conditional gift. So, I think the ring was probably not technically a gift. I think... He, uh, Ryan could have been considered in lawful possession of it because she gave it to him to eventually give back to her. But since she hasn't requested it back yet, and to me it's not clear, I mean obviously later, but when he left, it's not clear to me that they're broken up or that this is the end of their relationship necessarily. So I would say that if he had left with it in that moment, because maybe it was in his pocket or his backpack or something like that. 
uh, because she gave it to him and he probably would keep it somewhere safe, maybe, I don't know. Um, I don't think I would be able to consider it stolen until maybe when she asks for it back and if he wouldn't return it, then maybe, yeah, you, you probably you would have an argument to say that he stole it. But to just kind of jump to that conclusion and use that inflammatory word and repeating it, she said it over and over again. I hope he didn't steal it. Stole, like, if he stole my ring, it was, it was kind of gross. I don't know. Like, it just felt she was trying to paint a picture that she know that there are certain people that would 100% buy that interpretation of who this young guy from Belize is. Yeah. I, it was kind of gross. Um... But still, he didn't steal, if, even if he took all of those flip-flops, the watches, all the undies that she brought him, he's not stealing any of those. Those are, those are gifts. You cannot steal your gifts. So that's just it. The language that she was using was very inflammatory, and I think that it could have easily been very much on purpose um, to play on many people's possible stereotypes for um, individuals from Central American countries. So, um, also I'd like to point out that the ring was found in what to me looked like a little, little feminine makeup bag. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that was not his. So I don't know. The skeptic in me can't help but think she knew it was in there and just played up this whole frantically searching for the ring. And he better not have stolen my mother's ring. He knows that he would hurt me if he stole the ring. But, yeah. Which, if that's the case, then that is just so gross, as I've said. And the whole comment of her threatening to, oh, I'll just go buy a cabana boy with all my flip-flops and t-shirts and watches that I brought. I mean, she she is what she is. She's a sex tourist and she just reeks of privilege and uh, I don't want to get into it any further. She gives me the same way I just don't like hearing or seeing about Big Ed from the last season of Before the 90 Days. They're just, they're just gross. It's just slimy. Uh, I don't like it. And a lot of it feels a lot like clout chasing and wanting to be famous. And I said, I wasn't going to get into it. And now here I am rambling, but yeah, I just wanted to also address the whole stealing thing because that, you know, I was getting over the shock of what was just explained to have happened before. And then we go right into that. And I, I think it took me a little while after watching it to be, okay, wait a minute here, lady. <laughs> Um, for the whole stealing thing. So I wanted to address it, but yeah. So that was our show. Um, our inaugural episode of 90 Day Pro Se. Uh, if you liked this episode, please give it a five-star rating, subscribe, and follow me on Instagram at 90 Day Pro Se. That's 90 Day P-R-O-S-E. And if you didn't like it, uh, 
you don't have to listen again. Uh, but maybe send me a DM if you feel like it on Instagram. And let me know what about the podcast you think could use work, what you didn't like, what you um, what you'd like to see on the podcast. You know, I'm just just a little baby podcast. So be gentle. Um, I'd love feedback though on how I can make the podcast more enjoyable to you. Uh, so tune in next week. I'm gonna try to get it up Wednesday, like I originally had set my deadline today for, but I just got really crazy busy at work. So this is probably going to go up Thursday, but I'm going to try to make this a Wednesday thing. So tune in next Wednesday for another episode of 90 Day Pro Se.